people are really excited about your uh, visit to Halifax. Uh, it took us about two hours since we put this event online to when it sold out. Uh, does that kind of response in cities that you're not really working in or for tempt you at all to run for other levels of politics? First of all, I never use the term levels of government because it implies a hierarchy. So I always say orders of government. And if you ever say junior level of government, I will kick you in the shins. <laughs> You're listening to the Offscript Podcast. My name is Mark Coffin, and I am your host. This week on a special episode of the Offscript Podcast, we get a lesson in better politics from the man you just heard, Nahid Nenshi, who has been the mayor of Calgary since 2010. Mayor Nenshi is arguably one of Canada's most well-known political figures, and regardless of how close your own politics are to his, most people can probably agree that he has been a powerful voice for reminding people of the importance of local government. One of the ways that he does this is through his approach to engaging with the public, the media, and other politicians. We invited him to join us for a public conversation during his visit to Halifax in March of 2015. We hosted that conversation at the Smiling Goat Espresso Bar. Now, Marinenshi has a sense of humor, and while his jokes were obvious to most of the people in the room because they were in the room, there are a few things you need to know to get them. The talk took place right after two huge snowstorms uh, that hit Halifax and took the city forever to dig itself out of, and he was wearing a purple tie. Here is Marinenshi from Calgary. There are a lot of GoPros and cameras and stuff going on in this place, and I feel like the need to take a selfie with this big group, but... I left my phone in my coat, so <clears throat> it is what it is. Well, listen, thank you very much for having me today. Uh, I'm really excited about the opportunity to speak with all of you today. Uh, I know a little bit about Springtide and about the work that Springtide does, and I was very, very excited to hear about this movement to make democracy better. Because I feel like, even though I'm a politician now, this is still very much part of my goal. And I thought what I'd do today is share with you a little bit of my story and how I ended up uh, stumbling into what I'm doing now, and how I am continuing to attempt to bring some of those same ideas and thoughts into politics, and how frustrated I am um, at the state of politics and other <coughs> orders of government. Uh, and maybe we'll talk a little bit about that as well. So who am I? I'm a guy who was always engaged in the community. I just met the president of the Dalhousie Students' Union, and I told him, I'm sorry, bad news. I was president of the University of Calgary Students' Union, and my VP external is now my chief of staff. So you're stuck with the people you're with now for the rest of your lives, folks. <laughs> and then I was told that the former premier, Premier Dexter, had the exact same story, that his VP also became his chief of staff, which I did not know. So I've always been a little bit engaged um, in community work, uh, and just in the community around me. I went off and lived and worked in Toronto for a long time and went to grad school and was very, very focused on getting my job, my career, and so on straight. And one time when I was living in Toronto, I was traveling a lot for work, and I realized that I would be away for the municipal election, and I would also be away for the advanced voting days. And the strange thing was, I realized as well that I didn't much care. Because the election wasn't all that interesting. We already knew who was going to win for mayor. And my councillor was a non-entity, so I didn't really much care about voting for councillor one way or the other. And that really bugged me, because I had never not voted in an election. And I thought, well, why is that happening? And I blame myself mostly 
for not being as rooted in the community as I should be. And, you know, part of that was I was traveling a lot and so on, but part of it was that I wasn't seeking out opportunities to become more rooted in the community. So when I left that job and decided to move back to Calgary, I didn't have a job. My only goal was to be more relevant, to be more relevant in the community. And I did a bunch of things. Um, I worked with an organization called Canada 25 that was looking at getting people between 20 and 35 more involved in the communities around them through the lens of public policy. Through that work, I wrote a little book about the future of Canadian cities. Somehow became an expert on Canadian cities because I wrote a little book. Who knew it worked that way? I thought it was the other way around. Um, and I uh, ended up teaching and doing other work. Now, the reason that I mention that is in my time as a professor at Mount Royal University, and I keep having to remind the folks at Mount Royal University that I'm still a professor. I am just on leave, and no, they cannot take my job away. <laughs> January 1st, 2018, they tell me I'm supposed to be back in the classroom. My research focused in two areas. One was on civic engagement, how and why people get involved in their communities. And the other was about cities and how we can make cities better. And I learned a couple of things. The first thing I learned was that it is actually tremendously easy to get people involved in their communities. Super easy. And the research bears this out. Number one reason people don't get involved or don't volunteer is what? That's exactly right. It's not time, it's not money, it's nobody asked me. So all you gotta do is ask people. You gotta set the table. You've gotta set expectations that Service and volunteerism is what we do. And this afternoon, I had the chance to speak uh, at the Halifax Chamber of Commerce, and I told the story of our response to the flood in 2013. And if I distill that down to one sentence, it is, we helped one another because that's what we do. And if I had a little role to help set the table, to help set the expectation for that work, that's a good thing. While it's very interesting to get people involved in their community, it's extremely difficult to get people involved in government, in politics. And there's no rocket science to this. It's exactly why you think it is. People are cynical. They feel alienated from their governments. They feel that their vote won't make a difference, that all governments are the same, and that they don't see themselves in government. Which, if you think about it, is ridiculous. Because, of course, government is about people, and people are about government. I don't exist but for my citizens. And I think that that is a, a, a problem, a very big problem, a very big disconnect that we have to try and negotiate, that we have to try and figure out how we've done that. Certainly, we politicians have to take a lot of the blame for this, and I'll come back to that theme um, in a couple of minutes. <laughs> I said before I came up here, I'm going to speak for a really short period, so we'll have tons of time for dialogue. I've been mayor for four and a half years. I've started almost every single set of remarks with, I'm going to speak for a really short period, and then we'll have a lot of time for dialogue, and I have never succeeded in doing it. So maybe here, uh, maybe here this is, this is uh, the first. So people often describe that alienation of citizens from government as apathy. I actually don't think that's true. I don't think there is such a thing as an apathetic person. I don't think there is such a thing as a person who doesn't care about their future, who doesn't care about their family, who doesn't care about their community. The challenge is that we've created government institutions that are by their nature alienating. And what do we do about that? So back to my story. I decided I wanted to change this. 
I had worked with a group of great people, mostly young people, but not entirely, through a couple of organizations, Canada 25, an organization called the Better Calgary Campaign, and an organization called Civic Camp, which is a ridiculous name. The reason it's called Civic Camp is because the very first events was meant to be like a bar camp in the tech industry, where you get everybody together to solve a problem. And the problem we were trying to solve was, how do we build a better city? And we never could come up with an actual name for the organization, so we just called it Civic Camp. But all of these people were starting to get more involved, but nobody wanted to volunteer on political campaigns, and in particular, nobody wanted to run for office. And I think if you don't have great candidates, then it's very, very difficult for government to be as effective as it could be. So I decided that I was going to do something about it. I was going to talk people into running for office. So I spent much of a year before the last municipal election, the first municipal election that I ran in 2010, I spent much of a year trying to convince other people to run. From soccer coaches to parent-teacher association moms to corporate CEOs. We've got an election coming. We need your skills. We need your brains. We need your abilities. You should run. And I struck out every single time. Not one person took my pitch. Now, that might be because I was just a bad pitcher. But I struck out every single time. And as I said this afternoon, I particularly struck out with women. Now, I'm used to striking out with women. <laughs> this is not a new experience. That Halifax date night video I watched before I came here, I'm telling you, <laughs> there may be a chance for me here. But, but this was a very different kind of striking out. Because women in particular were saying to me, there's no room for me in that world. It's antagonistic, it's nasty, the meetings are late at night. I want to start a family, I've got a young family, it's not conducive to the life that I lead, I don't want every mistake I make on the front page of the newspaper, I don't want people so mean to me on the internet. By the way, some years later, I was speaking with a very, very prominent woman in Calgary, and she was going through a career change, and I said to her, have you considered running for public office? And she asked me a question that no man had ever, ever asked me before which was, are the hours flexible enough that I can pick my kids up from school? And I had to stop and think about it. And I went, yeah, they totally are. You set your own schedule. As long as you can find someone to pick them up every second Monday when you're in council, because you can't leave when you're in council, beyond that, you pretty much set your own schedule. And the funny thing about that is, I never would have thought to say that to anybody before, because it's just not my lens. And so it sounds trite, you know, the reason that she didn't want to run for office is because she was worried that she wouldn't be able to pick her kids up from school. But solving these sorts of things actually is very important towards figuring out how we can reduce barriers to people getting into politics. And that person, by the way, chose not to run for political office uh, for the city council, but is now running federally. Now she's running for the liberals, so she's not going to win in Calgary. But <laughs> good for her for trying. So what happened to me? I'm very, very stubborn. Because I kept saying, look, it can be better. All we have to do is elect better people. And if we elect better people, the system gets better. And enough people rolled their eyes at me and said, look, smartass, if you're so good at this, put your money where your mouth is. Try to make it happen. And I said, well, I can't run for office. That's just silly. You've got to be good looking, charismatic, 
clearly I wasn't watching CPAC very much, but. <laughs> you gotta like petting dogs and kissing babies and shaking hands and don't ever get those confused. <laughs> really, don't ever get those confused, not in the age of camera phones. And enough people said, all right, you got to try it on your own. So I did. And me and this crazy team went forward and tried to do this thing based on a couple of very, very simple tenets. You know, we didn't know what we were doing. We'd all been engaged in politics in the past, but we were going to try something brand new. And those simple tenets were this. One, don't treat people like idiots. And if you want to know what my core political philosophy is, people always ask, are you conservative or you're liberal or you're left-wing or you're right-wing? I don't even know what those words mean. I think most Canadians don't know what those words mean. What I do know is that citizens aren't stupid, that people are inherently good, and if given the right information, people will do the right thing. So, as you can tell from listening to me, I'm also not very good at sound bites. So in running for that election, I decided we're really going to engage Calgarians deeply on issues that matter. So every week during the election, we released something, a platform. We called them the Better Ideas. There were 12 of them by the end of the campaign. And every one of those had a single pithy line. Calgary Transit should be the preferred choice for commuters, not the last choice. You know, Calgarians should be able to move around their city efficiently regardless of their choice of transportation. So one line. Beyond that one line would be a page or two saying what I wanted to do. There'd be an audio and video podcast of me explaining the idea. And then, interestingly enough, there would be a paper, a research paper, anywhere from four to 20 pages long with footnotes and case studies talking about where the ideas came from and what happened. The night before the election, someone pointed out to me that any one of my 12 better ideas had more words in it than the, surprisingly, than the combined platforms of all of my opponents. And there were 12 of them. And thanks to technology and Google Analytics and things like that, what we realized is people were reading them from beginning to end and commenting and getting into fights and debating and talking about them. Because people are willing to be able to engage that way if you ask them to. And if you make it easy for them. The second tenant of our of our campaign was a very simple old rule of politics. Go where the people are. Don't expect them to come to you. So we tried to make it really easy. You know, we went to every festival, every pathway, every park, and just talked to people. And, of course, we discovered, as you know, that a lot of people live online. And there are ways to reach groups and clubs online, different organizations as they come together, but just individuals who like different things. One of the most politically active forums in Calgary is a forum on the Calgary Flames fan site. You know, most of it's about hockey, but there's something called the off-topic forum, just anything that's not hockey. And there's deep, thoughtful, engaging conversations about politics. So you go and you find these folks, and you get into those conversations, and you talk about that. And it's something that I've tried to keep doing now that I'm in the job now, and I'm going to go a little faster here. But there's stuff that really works. When we started to engage on our budget, we went through a big process of how do we get people really involved, not on the boring thing as about budget and business plan, but on those core questions. What do you want your city to be? What do you want us to do more of? What do you want us to do less of? How are we going to pay for it? And talking to people at that level, the first time around in our business cycle, we got 18,000 people. 
The second time around, we got 24,000 people coming and talking to us about budgets and business plans, but really talking to us deeply about this question of what kind of a community they want to live in. My favorite example of that is the bus. So there's a bus. It's actually a bus. And if you happen to be waiting at your bus stop, you may see a bus with a bunch of post-it notes on the inside and outside come up to your bus stop. It's the Engage bus. And if you get on the bus that day, it means you get a free ride. You don't have to pay a fare. In return, you have to talk to the City of Calgary employees on that bus about whatever issue they want to engage you on. <laughs> it started with transit. That's why it's a bus. But I wouldn't let them stop, take the bus out of circulation. So we use it all the time now um, and continue to have people talk about this stuff. It works well. I'm wearing, there it is. I'm wearing my number three today. I want to tell you the story about the number three, and then I will wrap it up. So the number three stands for a simple social movement called Three Things for Calgary. And all it is is a movement that says every citizen should do three things for their community every year. When I was first elected, it was very ex the election itself was very exciting. You know, it's like a, the ice had broken on the river and people were really talking about the future of their community and their hopes and dreams and fears and challenges for their city. And so after I was elected, one of the first things I did was I called in a group of super volunteers and I said, guys, we have to figure out a way to make sure that people are as engaged between elections as they were during this election. We've got to figure out a way to get people more involved in their community. You guys know what you're doing. I'll give you 30 days. 45 days later... They came back to me and they said, Mayor, good news. And I said, okay. And they said, we've come up with a name for our committee. <laughs> they could not have done worse. The Mayor's Committee on Civic Engagement. I've told that story so many times about this terrible name. They actually, this is true. They came up to me a year ago and said, Mayor, quit making fun of our name. We've changed our name. And I said, okay, what is it now? Mayor's Civic Engagement Committee. It took them a year to figure that out. Anyway, some days later, they came to me with this three things idea, and I said, congratulations, guys. You have come up with something that is simultaneously too difficult and too simple. It's too difficult because you want people to do three things. You want to lower the barrier. Just get them to do one thing, one small thing. And it's too simple because you're not telling people what to do. You know, remember the one number one reason people don't volunteer is nobody asked me. So we actually need to match people with ideas. You've got to get nonprofits. You've got to have volunteer fairs. You've got to build an online exchange for all of this stuff to happen. And in fact, they convinced me that I was wrong. And I realized that the real strength and power of the program is those two things. It's not really about doing three things. It's about creating a lifetime habit of service and getting people into the pattern of doing service all the time. And the fact that we don't tell people what to do is actually the real power of the program. Because people ask themselves two questions. What am I good at? What am I passionate about? And if they can find an answer to both of those questions, they just go off and do it. Whether it's starting a new nonprofit or shoveling your neighbor's walk, it's unbelievable. Tens of thousands of people have pledged to do their three things. And by the way, it's completely open source. You can steal it at your leisure. 
Um, three things for London, Ontario, three things for Wood Buffalo in northern Alberta where the oil sands are have already launched. Uh, and I hope that uh, all of you will think about doing it out here as well. If we want politics to be more relevant to people, then we politicians have a job to do, but citizens have a job to do to keep us honest in making sure we're doing it. And our job as politicians needs to be to drop the ideology, to drop the partisanship, to accept good ideas regardless of where they come from, and make sure that we are working in a way that is pragmatic and that is thoughtful. And when I look particularly at our federal government these days, I see us going in exactly the opposite direction. The politics of fear, the politics of division, the politics of poll-tested ideas to divide us even further to get you one more vote than the other guy. That's not where Canadians are. That's why fewer people are voting. That's why fewer people are getting engaged in government. Because we're playing a game that doesn't matter to the people out there. It's a game that's only for us. And we got to drop the game and we got to stop doing it. I got to tell you, this freaks out three groups of people in society. My biggest critics. Journalists, political science professors, and other politicians. Because we're the only ones who understand the rules of that game. And it freaks us out that we're trying to change the game. But we need to change the game. We need to understand that we don't live in a world of black hat and white hat hero and villain, but that we live in a world of nuance, a world of community, and a world that where we come together. The single best thing anyone can ever say to me is if they walk up to me on the street and they say, Mayor, I completely disagree with what you did. And I totally understand why you did it. That means I've succeeded. That means I've succeeded in letting citizens into the conversation, into figuring out the nuances, the black, the white, the trade-offs, the things we're trying to do, and I've succeeded in showing them that we make a decision. Now, I'm not saying that every single thing I do has to be subject to a poll that majority rules. People elected me, I hope, because I have some judgment, and I'm going to make some decisions based on the kinds of things I believe in. But I also believe that I make better decisions when I have the best data. And the best data means having the experts weigh in. And having the experts weigh in means listening to citizens. You know, I love public transit, for example. I'm a transit freak. I ride the bus and the train wherever I go. I try to get from the airport downtown on public transit, which freaks people out now that I'm the mayor, wherever I go. And in my city administration, I've got people who are transportation engineers, who are network fare specialists. I've got people who know how to drive buses and trains. We're not the experts on transit. You know who the expert on transit is. It's the person who takes the bus every day. She tells me when the system's working and when it's not working and what kinds of things I need to do to make it better. So when I get that expert opinion and make those decisions, that's when we do better as a community. I was going to tell you a thoughtful and heartwarming story about community, and I'm happy to do it, but instead, I'd rather take some questions and have some dialogue. So let me stop there, and let's keep talking. That was Mayor Nahid Nenshi of Calgary giving a talk uh, in Halifax in March of 2015. We're going to return to the conversation he had with uh, people that were in the room in a moment uh, where he takes some questions, but we wanted to stop and just uh, remind you how easy it is to donate to the Offscript podcast. 
this is a podcast that is really born as a labor of love and uh, every dollar that you donate goes to the costs and time that are put into the production each week which is no small effort so uh, if you'd like to donate uh, you can go to offscript.ca slash donate and make either a one-time or a monthly contribution we're talking really small amounts that can help keep this going if everybody that listened gave a little bit like three dollars or five dollars or eight dollars a month uh, that'd get us really far in being able to keep bringing you great podcasts so check it out offscript.ca slash donate and thank you to all of you who have donated already uh you are helping keep this podcast alive all right back to marinenci around the idea of uh the people who uh get freaked out by the system changing uh how do you fix that i don't know (laughs) so you know while you're working on that i'll give you an example my previous council you know i'm in my second term now and my previous council, I think, were so freaked out by me in general that um, they kind of went along for the ride. And then I had a very difficult situation in the last election, not for me personally, but across my council. And I've had a few members elected who have been elected who have much more of a partisan stripe. And there's only three or four of them. But they're turning it into a partisan council where their vote is based on who moves the item not based on how good it is. And it's very, 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 very frustrating. Uh, if you ask me the thing I hate the most about my job, it would be that. I don't mind if people want to fight. I think fights are good. And I think that we should be arguing about ideas and putting them out in public and pushing them and prodding them uh, until they get better. But it means you've got to give up ego. It means you've got to take other people's changes, admit when you're wrong, um, and it means that you've got to listen to the ideas instead of to your, your base ideology. So it's a constant battle. You know, I thought I'd won that battle. But you've got to keep fighting it all the time. But it takes some will to do that. And that's hard in the political world we have right now. You know, we've been hearing a lot of talk lately about the niqab at citizenship ceremonies. Who cares? You know, it's not a big deal on either side. I go to tons of citizenship ceremonies. It's one of my favorite things to do as a mayor. And the entire time I've been doing it, I've seen one woman in the niqab, and she lifted her veil slightly so you could see her mouth while she was reading the oath. But in the end, it doesn't really matter. The oath is just symbolic. Yet we're having all this endless conversation about it. And I tell you, the endless conversation is not because somebody in the prime minister's office or the prime minister himself has a deep-seated feeling about the niqab and citizenship ceremonies and the values that that embodies and what it means to us as Canadians. It's just a poll-tested idea. If I say this, it's going to get more people agreeing with me than disagreeing with me. That's all. And I think that if we are living in a world where that's all that matters is what's going to get me more votes than it's going to lose me, then that's a world where we cannot do good government, and as a result, people get more and more alienated. Hi, uh, great speech, and I'm going to pose a question in the form of a comment and invite your comment, one of those cheat versions, you know? <laughs> okay. Um, but, you know, in talking about the quality of our political dialogue that we're having as a country, um, one of the things that I, it seems to me is one of the biggest problems is that we often in the media... Um, see journalists uh, analyzing bills or situations that happen, whether it's the NACOB, whether it's the terrorist bill or so many others, in terms of um, what what they mean in terms of strategy, what impact they have on someone being Mm -hmm. reelected or not. And they will bring in 
pollsters to give their thoughts on the impact of this decision. Who gives a good goddamn what a pollster thinks about a bill on terrorism? I mean, it's just insanity, you know? Um, and it's like um, the media is nervous to express opinions in the articles, but there's so much potential for um, evaluating a policy or a bill in terms of the uh, principles that we've established as a country um, in, in so many forms. And so, yeah, I guess, well, here's an actual question, is <laughs> how can we um, get the media to shift that and in so doing help shift all of our conversation away from uh, cynical strategy to what the real uh, content, to really evaluating the purpose, the goals of government action? Well, you know, this is not new. Um, James Fellows wrote a book probably 20 years ago called Breaking the News in which he talked about this concept of horse race journalism where everything is boiled down to the horse race and what it means for the horse race. And it's a bit lazy, frankly. And I think that we all deserve better, but we can't rely on others to do that for us, you know. If you have a thoughtful analysis of Bill C-51, well, write a blog, you know, get it out there. And in fact, it's really interesting because the most thoughtful critics of Bill C-51 are two professors whose names slipped my mind now, um, who did exactly that, you know, got out of the political um, aspect of it and just started talking about what they thought some of the things were. But I got to tell you, one thing that bugs me, and I am a professor, remember, in a business school, but the thing that bugs me is the laziest thing you can do as a journalist is go to a pollster for comments, the second laziest thing you can do as a journalist is go to a political science professor for comments. Um, and you really have to be able to get way beyond that. I always tease my friends in the political science department going, that's an interesting comment you had about our city council in the newspaper. Your PhD was on the role of women in Plato. What do you know about garbage collection? <laughs> You're just a guy who reads the newspaper, which is fine, but I could listen to lots of other guys who read the newspaper as well. They hate it when I say stuff like that. <laughs> Mainly because when I was a business professor, I did the same thing. <laughs> yeah, Mary Neshi, thank you for your remarks. Um, I, too, am a scientist, and I'm interested in um, how we get past the fear of politics. And it, I, the politics of fear or the politics of division only works if we let it work. And it's up to us as citizens and um, leaders to look at systems, but also to, I think there's many points of... Um, entry, I think, and you speak to many of them, how as leaders, politicians, we can do things, but also engaging people in a sense of efficacy, that their voice matters, that what they're doing and what they have to say really is part of the data set we use to make our decisions. So we need science to be brought to bear, but we also need public opinion. We have to accentuate the positive, as they say. So for example, in Alberta, we have had just an insane discussion over the last several months that has to do with gay-straight alliances in schools. And this issue was seen by the political parties in our legislature through that horse race lens. Who am I going to alienate? Who am I going to get support from? And the whole thing collapsed spectacularly in the fall. Um, when a opposition member put up a private member's bill saying we should mandate gay, not mandate, we should allow gay straight alliances in any school where the students want them. And there, all this, you could see the math going on in the opposition party's heads. Is, do I support this? Do I not support this? And in the end, it just got ridiculous. You know, the Tories voted down, the, the government uh, voted down the opposition bill, but replaced it immediately with one of their own that they clearly had written on the back of a napkin the night before. 
And it said that you have to have a gay-straight alliance, but the school doesn't have to offer it. So if your school refuses to offer it, then you can take your school to court under this act. So some 15-year-old who's worried about being bullied uh, will now go to court in order to have the right to have an after-school club. So the thing got ridiculous, ridiculous in ways you can't even imagine. And I got up and made a speech saying we're looking like hillbillies to the rest of the world, and then I got in trouble, but that's okay. I'm used to that. Um, But the biggest thing for me was a very simple question that was raised by many citizens and that I also raised, which is we have a group of young people who have a suicide risk three to ten times the risk of the average population, where one in three of them attempt to take their own lives. We have a technique that we know works to radically reduce that risk and make people safer in schools that they go to every day. Why are we having a fight about this? And what ended up happening was that the government, which I'll remind you, has a crushing majority, 72 out of 87 seats, reconvened on Monday without telling anybody on the first day of the new sitting of the session, put forth an amended bill, which was identical to the bill they had voted down in the fall, and it passed almost unanimously, Um, which is great. It's great. It's a great day for standing up uh, and doing the right thing by all children in our community. But it only happened because regular people said, no, your poll testing is wrong. This, what you're doing is wrong. It's not right for these kids. Don't do it. And as a result, because regular people stood up, just regular citizens, parents and kids and teachers and those brave, brave kids who faced down their own government, and government went, oh, (laughs) we are completely offside here with what people actually want. So that's a happy story. And I think those are the sorts, that's why I said accentuate the positive. We've got to continue to tell those stories to governments everywhere saying this is what works, right? And in particular, you're seeing incredible politics of fear as we're going into a federal election. It's shocking. But they're only doing it because they think it'll work. The best way to keep them from doing it is to show them it doesn't work. Um, And to go back and say this is not the world we want to live in. Yeah, there's no cameras here. I'll just say something else. (laughs) We've had a remarkable week out here in the Maritimes where the NP for New Brunswick Southwest said some really boneheaded things. But the most interesting thing to this about this whole situation, about the whiteies and the brown people to me, by the way, I'm going to be on Rick Mercer next week and he and I are starting a new series called Whitey and Brown People. (laughs) It'll be like a cop show with witty political commentary. It's going to be awesome. Um... The most interesting thing about it was not that he said this and rightly apologized right away. The interesting thing about it is the incredible parsing of his statement that has been going on by the talking head saying, well, it's not really racist. He's not racist. It was just a racist thing to say. He's a nice guy. Well, I'm sure he is. I don't know the man. I'm sure he's a nice guy. You don't get to be the MP unless you're sort of a nice guy. But... You know, one very, very important um, national political columnist sent me a tweet saying, why are you so upset? Look, I'm sure the guy doesn't have a hood in his closet. And I'm like, I'm sure he doesn't have a hood in his closet either. But I think we as citizens expect more from our leaders. The bar shouldn't be I don't burn crosses on people's lawns. (laughs) The bar needs to be that I respect all Canadians 
and I want to give everyone the opportunity to succeed and live a life of dignity in this country. And it takes us citizens saying, you know, stupid political panel parsing the statement and determining whether it was racist or not. Don't do that. Talk about what it could have been. Talk about what we're trying to do here. Talk about how the problems with the temporary foreign workers program are not technical problems. They are problems of basic Canadian values. That the person who serves us the coffee at Tim Hortons in the morning deserves a dignified life and a path to citizenship. Let's talk about that instead of saying the brown people are taking the white people's jobs because we have too much EI. (laughs) It's not true, by the way. At least it's a critique, but it's not true. But that's up to us, right? So I hope that people will write that MP lots of letters and say, it doesn't really matter if you're racist or not. What matters is whether or not you support people having a life of dignity in this country. Let's talk about that. Um, actually, I really uh, like the way you mentioned that uh, you can't expect people to come to you. You have to go to these uh, specific communities. And as a Canadian immigrant, you know, I've seen that there are uh, community groups out there that have historically been disenfranchised. Uh, they feel uh, alienated, you know, and uh, it's hard for them to, they think they're a part, uh, outside the mainstream. So how, what kind of tactics or strategies do you recommend engaging with people from um, those sort of backgrounds? It's really about opportunity and ensuring that everyone in our communities has the opportunity to do great and to succeed. The challenge with politics as it reaches out to different ethnic groups is that you can run the risk of serious tokenism. So I happen to be, this might surprise you, I happen to be good friends with Jason Kenney. I think Jason Kenney is a terrific politician, exactly the kind of person we want to have in politics. Made a terrible mistake on temporary foreign workers, but we all make mistakes. But he spends all of his time, every single night, (laughs) out at different ethnic events. The man can say, you know, hello, welcome in every language known to man. (laughs) Um, And it's a good thing that he's doing all this outreach. But as we heard from Mr. Williamson's comments, the outreach is kind of cynical. Because it's about tokenism, it's really about looking good in different kinds of turbans, right? Instead of really looking at how to engage people more deeply into the mechanisms by which we are governed. And that's a hard one. Because political, you know, on my own council, okay, Calgary's an incredibly ethnically diverse city, as you can imagine. On my own council, I am, if I'm counting correctly, the fourth non-white council member ever. And part of that is because we don't have political parties at the municipal level, so you have to be able to attract enough of a campaign with yourself as an individual fundraising and volunteers to be able to run. The political parties make it easier for people to run, but they also make it easier to throw people into these tokenistic things where in my neighborhood, which is a very ethnically diverse neighborhood in Calgary, it's always you know the Sikh candidate running against the Muslim candidate running against the Hindu candidate. For the white people, they're all brown. For John, for John Williamson, all brown. Um, but actually different. (laughs) And the parties always think, oh, I've got the Sikh candidate and there are more Sikhs in the neighborhood than there are Muslims, therefore I'm going to win. The voters don't think that way. Once they're in the privacy of the polling booth, they vote in different ways. And I think that our political parties haven't quite figured that out yet. And, you know, for me, when I ran, the issue of my ethnicity and my religion came up almost never during the campaign. It came up once and... Um, the Calgary Herald got more phone calls to their newsroom on that story than on anything else they ran during that election. And basically everyone was very angry and said, why do we care what he looks like or where he goes to worship? We want to know what he thinks about transit. Now, the minute that I was elected, I suddenly became super famous. You know, I was Time Magazine, CNN, Al Jazeera, 
And it was only because, not even of my ethnicity, it was only because of my religious faith. That was all people cared about. Uh, and I had a choice at that time. I could have just not done any of those interviews. But I decided to do it precisely to tell the story of how if you create a truly pluralistic and meritocratic community, nobody cares. And I'm not saying be colorblind. I'm very proud of my background. I'm very proud of my heritage. It's part of who I am. And I'm not just, you know, culturally Muslim. I'm a practicing Muslim. But the fact that I can be both that and a committed public servant who speaks for the whole community, the fact that I, as a straight man who everyone thinks is gay, will be at the front of the pride parade, but I don't care, right? The fact that I can do that and be at the front of the pride parade, speaking out for everyone in the community is a big deal. You know, when I, when I did that, when I, when I went to the front of that pride parade, first time a mayor had ever done that, people were like, oh, that took such great courage. How did he do that? And I was like, they asked me to go, and I was free that weekend, so I went. <laughs> Um, and I got so many phone calls in my office, and you know what? Not one negative call. The, 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 the most common call, as a matter of fact, was from someone who called and said, you know, I don't like those gays, but he's got to be the mayor for everybody, so good for him for doing that. Just to make you feel better about the whole jur uh, journalist thing, I just got done journalism school, and they actually are telling us not to go over professors all the time. Hooray! Just to make you feel better about that. <laughs> Um, what's one problem that all mayors face in Canadian cities and who's doing it who's kind of solving the problem the best? Money, 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 money. Um, in Canada, cities have only one real form of taxation, the property tax, which is a terrible regressive tax uh, that doesn't work very well and certainly does not allow you to build capital projects that you need to build. So we're forever going to provincial and federal governments with our hands out saying, can we have a tax rebate, please? Because <laughs> we have to build this stuff. So that's the biggest issue, and different provinces are facing it in different ways. Um, here, Halifax is what you call a charter city. We are attempting to get a charter in Calgary and in Edmonton, um, but it has to be quite different than the Halifax one, because the Halifax one, we find, is even more of a straitjacket than being permissive. A charter should be permissive, not restrictive. Um, and so those are things we have to work on. You know, I always used to say Saskatchewan is kind of getting this right, their provincial government has taken a portion of their provincial sales tax and put it directly to municipalities so that they have a permanent, stable source of funding. But I just heard two weeks ago that the Saskatchewan government is talking about taking it away. So even when they got it right, they may still get it wrong. And that's part of the problem because as long as the cities are reliant on the ad hoc, episodic support of the federal and provincial governments, we're not going to get anywhere. And cities really need the ability to set their own futures. Recently, I noticed that the city of Halifax has just put out a, a call for, um, for a new position for a manager of diversity and inclusion. So I'm extremely excited to see that for the city because it's the first time. So if you were to sit down with somebody who was going to be in that position for the first time, what would you give them some advice around priorities and strategies about what to do for the city? Oh, you've asked a much bigger question than you think you have because this is actually a big, big issue for me. Um, in a very specific way, because the city of Calgary is not just a government, it's a very large employer. I've got 20,000 colleagues at the city of Calgary, and the second largest employer in my region, actually. And I am forever, as part of, I have to back up just a little bit, one of my proud moments during my first term was that council unanimously endorsed a new poverty reduction strategy for Calgary called Enough for All. And a lot of that poverty reduction strategy has to do with the role of business in reducing poverty. 
And a lot of that has to do with poverty among minority communities and First Nations. So I have been lecturing business like you would not believe to think about how they can use their business processes to make a dent in poverty. And part of that means removing those dirty words, Canadian experience from your hiring criteria. Part of it means reaching out uh, to First Nations people and figuring out how to provide employment. And part of it means changing your supply chain and your purchasing so that you're buying goods and services from wealth creating entrepreneurs in the community. So all of that said, I'm lecturing them forever, but I got to look in my own house. And as an employer, I think that we at the City of Calgary can do a much better job on being a diverse and inclusive workplace. And we have to, because we're a public employer. So we have to set an example. We've got to be better at this than just about anyone else in terms of hiring, promotion, retention, uh, and so on. So I have been actually sitting down with the people in my uh, organization who do have that title and saying, how do you do better? Because I can't be out there telling business to do it if we as an employer are not doing a terrific job on that. And so we continue to work on it. Um, but as, as I say, I think that the public sector employers really have to be at the forefront. We have to show examples of how having a diverse and inclusive workplace actually leads to better results, more efficiency, um, and a more uh, reflective, uh, reflective workforce of our community and all the benefits of that. And then business. Uh, thank you very much for coming down. And uh, I'd like to thank Spring Tide Collective for putting on this great event. Um, going back to 2002 through the build-up uh, report that you put out with mm -hmm, uh, mm -hmm. Canada 25, um, you mentioned that there were, th essentially without going through the grocery lists of the subpoints, you mentioned that there were three main trends. Uh, you've already addressed uh, diversity. The other two were, I believe, density. Density and a sense of discovery. Yeah. Um, having already covered that, what mechanisms for the other two or ways that cities who ha that have been successful um, in promoting those, I guess, ideals or, or things, um, what, have, what has been successful, uh, basically? So briefly, um, on the density piece, if you really want to know more about that, 6 o'clock at the West in the Carmichael Lecture, that's what that's about. <laughs> Um, try and keep all of these lectures uh, in order while I'm here. Um, but very, very briefly, um, building up, that's what was the name of the book, but building up rather than out doesn't just mean building high-rises everywhere. It means thoughtfully figuring out ways that people can live together in neighborhoods. And by the way, more people can live in those neighborhoods. Um, very, very, very briefly, you have to think about it in three ways. You have to think about your downtown core, your center city, which does mean high-rise, high-density living. You have to think about when you're building new suburban communities on the outskirts, that those communities are walkable, that they're mixed, that they're safe, that people don't need a car to get to the store to get a loaf of bread. Um, those things, and you can do very thoughtful things with urban design now, and the brand new suburbs that we're building now are very different than the ones we built 10 years ago. They look similar, but they're much more efficient uh, and sustainable financially, socially, and environmentally. Um, but I'll talk much more about that uh, in my next talk. As for discovery, a sense of discovery, you know, that really is about economic development and thinking about how we help cities be the hubs of entrepreneurship, innovation, new ideas. So I always say, and I said today at lunch, that people from across the country are always surprised when I point out to them that the oil sands are not, in fact, located in downtown Calgary. Uh, that they're actually very, very, very far away. I can fly to Toronto in almost the same amount of time I can fly up to the oil sands mines. Canada's a very tall country. People forget that. Um, 
So then why are all those jobs and that innovation happening in downtown Calgary when it could be in Shanghai or Mumbai or Dubai or anywhere else that ends in I? Um, and the real reason is because you've created a hub where people want to work. That in downtown Calgary, you can walk around and see different people and different ideas at work, you know. And, and, and we know that this, this is very well understood in the literature, that networks and clusters and hubs make a huge difference. So you have to figure out kind of where you're going to trade and what you're going to do. So here, I'll tell you an interesting story. I was in a barber shop this morning, Sailor Bupp's Barber Shop. He's very aggressive on Twitter. I had to go. <laughs> but it was fascinating because I was listening to him talk, and I was listening to everyone else in the place talk, and he was talking about his barber shop as a community hub. And he said, you know, just yesterday there was a guy in one chair who was looking for work and a guy in another chair who had a job, and, you know, we figured out that we matched the two of them together. And I was sitting there getting a shave, and the guy next to me was working as a medical researcher on Alzheimer's drugs um, in mice. And later this afternoon, I went to the new Central Library, and I eavesdrop a lot. And so I was eavesdropping and listening to the conversations that people were having, and I was realizing that these sorts of physical hubs make a big difference. And this is a city where, obviously, you have tons of post-secondary and incredibly educated population, and there's a real opportunity for innovation to happen here if you can break down those human barriers and getting people to talk to one another. Um, you know, the barber learning about the Alzheimer's research on the mice was totally interesting. But the question is, who was in the other chairs? And how are they listening? And how do we create these community hubs, whether it's a coffee shop like this, you know, or a barber shop, or a library, or a university? And how do we break down the barriers between different kinds of people to make sure that those brain power that we've got in this community can actually lead to the economic development that will make a difference in the long term. You know, in Calgary, certainly it's resource-based. You know, a lot of it has to do with the oil industry. But that also means we have tons of engineers and scientists. It is the most educated city in Canada. I think Halifax is second. And, uh, and as a result, what do we do? How do we get those engineers talking to those artists, talking to those marketing people and those finance people and figure out how to build that more resilient economy that will keep us going when we can't rely on the natural resource economy as much anymore? And we haven't quite figured it out yet, but I think we're asking all the right questions. I'm curious. Uh, people are really excited about your uh, visit to Halifax. Uh, it took us about two hours since we put this event online to when it sold out. Uh, does that kind of response in cities that you're not really working in or for tempt you at all to run for other levels of politics? First of all, I never use the term levels of government because it implies a hierarchy. So I always say orders of government. And if you ever say junior level of government, I will kick you in the shins. <laughs> I, sometimes I sometimes remind the premier, though he doesn't like it very much, that I was elected by more people than all the Tory MLAs in Calgary. Combined. Um, but, and all, don't get excited. All mayors are because it's the, only, it's the only job in Canada where you're elected by your whole population, not just by one district or one riding. Um, that said, um, one rule of politics that you always know is if you're a local politician and you're having a bad day, go somewhere else. They always like you better in other places, um, which is a good thing. Uh, no, uh, I would, uh, first of all, I don't think any political party would have me. That's why I wear purple, right? It's red and blue. Oh, purple and some donair sauce. <laughs> uh, Halifax. Um, and uh, 
But secondly, the work that we do at the Municipal Order of Government is, I think, the most interesting work there is. You know, I often joke that if the federal government disappeared while we were in here, it would probably be a week or two before anyone noticed. Uh, if your provincial government disappeared, you'd notice pretty quickly. They do run the schools and the hospitals, but it might take a few hours. But if your municipal government disappeared, well, you'd have no police, you'd have no fire, you'd have no clean water. You roads would be full of snow. Oh, never mind. Um, <laughs> you'd have no parks, recreation, or arts facilities. And you'd notice pretty darn quick because you'd actually be dead. And so that work, I think, is really important work. And I love that someone like Mike Savage with a huge future in federal politics said, nah, where I can use my skills the best is right here at the municipal order. And uh, I think that's terrific. And for me, I'm lucky. I've got the best political job in Canada, so I, I would never want to take such a demotion. <laughs> Thank you very much. Thank you all. And let me just say... Let me just say that, you know, I wasn't, uh, I wasn't uh, being facetious when I said I was really excited to come here based on the work that Springtide is doing. I love the metaphor. I didn't know what Springtide meant until you announced it at the beginning. But making this happen is really important. And the fact that you'll all take the afternoon and sit here in a beautiful coffee shop and talk about this stuff is an important first step, but you've got to keep going. And never mind that you've got a relatively new provincial government. You've got a municipal election in 18 months time and it's time now to get very and I hope you'll start focusing on municipal politics too by the way because right now exactly right this minute is the time you want to be recruiting candidates you want to get people to start running you want to start fundraising you want to get teams together because it's all about having great candidates whether they win or not is actually not that relevant but having great candidates who can uh, elevate the level of debate and who can engage citizens in a new way is incredibly important and congratulations on the work you're doing and I hope you'll keep doing it. Yeah. Thanks for listening to the Offscript Podcast. We'll be back next week with another special episode. In the meantime, uh, a reminder that there is Offscript content coming out of the news website localexpress.ca. That's the site run by journalists who are striking from the Chronicle Herald newsroom and we're producing kind of small snippets of the stories you're hearing on this podcast so if you're looking for something to share that uh, is more amenable to social media and then you can go to localexpress.ca and share that as well as consume uh, lots of other great news content that's published by uh, local independent journalists um, and a reminder that you can donate to support the Offscript podcast by going to offscript.ca slash donate, uh, where you can make a small monthly donation, whatever you can afford, uh, that can really help ensure that uh, we can keep this podcast coming. Thanks, and see you next week.